Welcome to another episode of Shades Midweek, where we have conversations about theology, culture, and all things Shades. I'm joined in Four Stream Studio by my co-hosts, John Mark DeRoe and Jonathan Hafes. I am Brad Brown. How are you guys doing today? Doing fantastic, man. You know, last week I, I realized we failed to talk about something that was of insane importance. Well, what yep. is that? Just, just, just incredibly foundational for everybody's life, and we just completely missed it. I'm on the edge of my seat. Yeah, yeah, and that is the fact that uh, my octopus teacher, which is not something I'm referring to as my own teacher. You don't have an one? Octopus. No. Um, I'll send you a link. For, for people that don't know, that is the title of a documentary. A documentary which we spent an entire episode of Shades Midweek discussing. Yes, we did. But what we failed to mention last week was that it won... It it is now not even an Oscar nominated. It is it is an Oscar winner. It was best supporting actor, right? <laughs> it, it it won the uh, the Oscar for best. Uh, they pushed the octopus out on stage <laughs> in a bowl. The octopus. Well, we we dropped that spoiler. The octopus died, Brad. Oh, that's right. The octopus <laughs> shows my memory. Yeah. Oh no, yeah. So I mean, it won. Uh, the octopus's child <laughs> accepts the award <laughs> on its behalf. If the octopus is included in the in memoriam. Oh man! Oh my goodness! Oh man! We could keep going, but anyway. But right. yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, that's, know, that's all. I had. We're well, talking about important I mean, things. We, we are on top of it, okay? Because we did that episode way bef- before they won, and yeah. you know we don't do a lot of film episodes here. That was like a very specific thing that we decided upon, and look at what happened. Man, it's all because of us. I'm very really, impressed with us right now. Just saying, won. we've got. I mean, which is really the entire spirit of the Oscars. You know, it's just a big right. awards program of we're very impressed with ourselves. Right. We're very impressed. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Pat ourselves on the back and give ourselves well, great. Awards. Well, thanks for thanks for bringing that up, Jonathan. Uh, well, you know, couldn't I, imagine not talking about that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's just swap. Let's talk about uh, JM's album of the week. Oh, let's. JM's album. All right. Do we have an album this week? That's the big question, you guys. <laughs> what? Dewey, are you D- looking right now? <laughs> <laughs> On Here's your phone. The deal. Uh, let me make that sure. That is procrastination <laughs> at its finest. Well, you know, sometimes I'm not just going to have a full-on album. Some weeks I'm, there may be a song that really hit me in a certain way. There may be something from my past that I have revisited recently. That's like the scripture reader getting up on Sunday and saying, "The scripture reader for today, is, or the scripture reading for today is." Give me a minute. Um, Gen- Gen- it's called, it's called Gen- JM's Gen- album of the week, not JM's thing of the week. Okay, I'm no, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have interrupted. I'm just kidding. Uh, how well, many, what you got? Whatever it is. Do you guys like yeah. Billie Eilish? Who is that? You never heard of her? <laughs> I'm kidding. I, I was setting you up. I'm going to keep my mouth closed on this because I actually have opinions and they're not popular with anyone. Oh, wow. No. So you must really like her. Well, I want to <laughs> hear your opinion, actually. Um, personally, I have not really listened to a lot of her music. So I am not an authority on her music, on her direction, on the kinds of things that she does, on how much creativity she has or whatnot. I know that it's very popular amongst groups of people. <laughs> I think that's a fantastic summary. Well, what, what 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 you got? Well, she's got a new single out that I actually love, um, and it's called "Your Power," 
and I'm hoping that it's going to play here. Oh, wait a second. There's an instrument in it. Sorry, that yeah. was... Never mind. Sorry. Yeah, apparently her... The one thing that I do know is that her brother produces a lot of her music, apparently. Um, it's nice so far. Yeah, it's got like a Bonnie Vare type vibe. I was about to say I'm expecting a... This is all there Dude, it sounds like a Bon Iver cover from that album, not the self-title. Forever, forever. Again. Yes, forever, forever. I think that's why I like it. It kind of reminds me of that. So I have enjoyed that song. The video is pretty weird. Um, I did watch the video. Yeah, why don't um, we play the video? <laughs> <laughs> why don't we play play the video for all of our listeners yeah. here? Um, I like I like the song. I like the vibe. There's not a whole lot going on. Um, it's pretty strip, stripped back, um, which I enjoy from a musical perspective. I honestly haven't really dove into the lyrics that much. I just like the way that it feels. So, Jonathan, what are your opinions on Billie Eilish real quick? We need to move on. Um, <laughs> no, I really important. I really don't like I know this is very I know as much about Billie Eilish as, as you do right there. Like I've I've not been a dedicated listener. I know nothing about her like as a person, artist, any of that kind of stuff. I've only heard bits and pieces of songs. Yeah. You know, and I just I just don't get it. I'm old. Yeah. Is what it is. I just mm. I don't I don't understand the appeal or why it's popular. Or any of those things, and and I also I was like, what is a concert of this like? So I actually looked up a YouTube uh, video of a concert of oh, yeah. of her performing like the the big hit. Uh, I'm I'm a I'm the bad guy or whatever that I don't even know. I'm old, um, but I didn't get that either. Like I watched the concert the, or the clip and and like the performance just the, over your the, head. The huh? people in the in the in the the, the crowd like. I was just like, I don't understand Man, this. I, don't I would love to be it. contrarian to you. I just don't know. I've never, I've never listened. <laughs> to well, that. I think this is great because I'm sure there are some listeners out there that enjoy her music. So please write in to midweekshadesvalley.org. Oh, yeah. Give us your defense of Billie Eilish. Give us yeah. why you like her music. I do like the new single. I'm actually kind of excited about her new album now that I heard that single. So does it make you we'll want to see. go back and listen to other stuff, or are you not? You don't um, know yet. I'm not particularly curious at this juncture. <laughs> okay. speaking, speaking of I'm asking, I'm gonna check out that single though for sure. Check it out. Speaking of asking people to to email in, uh, I had forgotten about oh, oh, this. We had an email. We did get an oh, email yeah. this past week. So should we uh, should we take a trip down to the uh, the old email corridor? The email corridor. <laughs> Need to work on that jingle. Oh well. Do you let, have it, Jonathan? I, I don't know. Let me look. Let me see if I still have. If not, I can pull it up. We're right so here. professional. We are professional. My I'm, iPad's about to. I've die. also got to go in about ten minutes. So I've got it. <laughs> I've got it right here. All right. So from a from a frequent uh, emailer right here, Connor. How do you say his last name? I never get it right. Gata. Right? I say Gata. Yeah, I'd... Connor Gata. Uh, the subject is Peachtree City and golf carts. Wow. wow. So this is hot off the Meet a Member episode wow. with Brad from I wonder last what Connor week. has to say. To the distinguished gentleman of the Four Stream Studio. I love it that he the always starts that way. Distinguished gentleman. Very respectful. The distinguished gentleman. His parents raised him right. What's up, y'all? 
little, okay, bringing it down a little more casual. All right. uh, as someone who grew up in slash around Peachtree City, I can, from Fayetteville. I, I can confirm Brad's story about the insanity of the golf cart situation in PTC. Uh, I drove a golf cart to my high school every day, and as a family, we often rode the golf cart to Chick-fil-A or to the local Publix. <laughs> the town even had a few police units on golf carts that would patrol the paths. It's and, true. And watch for DUIs on the trails. <laughs> <laughs> I'm That's just a, thinking, how lame would it be to have a record for getting a DUI on a golf cart? Well, I had a lot of oh, friends whose not parents... That, not that getting a DUI ever is cool. <laughs> just but I'm just thinking... Just to qualify. I'm just, I'm just thinking you're in you're, you're, you're in the pokey. Oh, you're in jail, and, and someone's like, what are you in for? And you're like, DUI on a golf cart. <laughs> yeah, I had uh, par- uh, friends whose parents would go out and drink and they would take the golf cart when they would do that. Right. Because I guess they felt oh like that word. was okay. It's a little safer, I think, maybe. I don't, <laughs> I don't, know, if on, don't know if you want to be on record for that, <laughs> John Mark. Ki- I'm just kidding. I don't um, know. Just, just uh, it shades with midweek as opposed to all drinking and driving. That's right. <laughs> that's, just our, that's our official statement, our official stance. That's right. Grant um, Primo, our lawyer, would definitely want us to say that. Right. Um, so, all right, to finish his email, he says, uh, I think I must have been in middle school. I know that's way too late. Uh, before I realized that most towns do not have carts and cart paths. (laughs) Growing up in Peachtree City slash Fayetteville area was definitely a unique experience. Connor Gata. Connor, thank you for sharing with us your your experience. Added to that for sure. All right, so I just threw that little trip down to the email corridor in the the midst of, in between, JM's uh, album of the week and Bradford's book club. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bradford's Book Club. This week, I have a book that is near and dear to my heart. It is a book by a theologian named Todd Billings. If you've never heard of Todd Billings, shame on you. A lot of judgment here. Shame! A lot of of judgment here in Bradford's Book Club. He's one of your favorites. He's one of my favorites. He's one of my theological heroes. I got to meet him. And had a brief conversation with him. I still think about how dumb I sounded during that conversation. (laughs) So yes, he means a lot to me. But he's a brilliant theologian, a great thinker. And he's written a book called Rejoicing in Lament, Wrestling with Incurable Cancer in Life in Christ. So I believe he was 39 when he was diagnosed with a rare form of incurable cancer. And so in the wake of that diagnosis, he starts, not that he hadn't before, but he's really grappling with these hard theological questions that are all of a sudden very personal. Why me? Why now? Where is God in the midst of all of this? And so in the book, uh, Billings shares a little bit of his journey, his struggle, and his reflection on providence, lament, and what it means to live in Jesus in light of his diagnosis. So the book is titled Rejoicing in Lament. 
And one of the things that I think Billings does so well in this book is show how lament is so critical and important for our prayer life and how it really was a balm for his soul during the treatment, during the struggle, during the questions about, am I about to die? What's going to happen to my family? All of that. He talks about bringing all of that in lament before the Lord. And I would, I don't think I'm overstating it to say that this book was a uh, pretty revolutionary for my prayer life. And it really showed me that I don't lament in my prayers. And when I started doing it, it, it felt very weird. Um, so uh, Billings book is, is phenomenal, not only because you have someone that uh, has received a diagnosis of incurable cancer and is walking through that. And in the book, he actually has journal entries along the way where he's reading scripture and reflecting, but he's also asking these questions about where is God in evil and suffering? And he's a world-class theologian doing so. And so I would highly recommend it. Rejoicing and lament, wrestling with incurable cancer and life in Christ by Todd Billings. Even though he is a theologian, I I think it's very approachable and, and very helpful as we think about evil and suffering. Yeah, it sounds like it'd be a great book to read alongside of the Psalter, like as we go through the Psalm series as well. Yes, totally. He talks about how important the Psalms has been for him in this journey. Awesome. Beautiful. All right, Jonathan, well, what are we doing today? Well, we uh, actually recorded an interview with Dr. Doug Webster um, that we're going to play for y'all today. Um, it was uh, it was a fantastic time for us to get to spend with him. For those who are a part of Shades, you will hopefully recognize Dr. Webster from the fact that he has been a guest preacher for us twice, uh, and one of those times really recently. Uh, he's a professor of mine and Brad's, former professor of mine and Brad's from Beeson Divinity School. And yeah, so we just got a chance to talk with him both uh, about his life and ministry, about his recent sermon, and about a new book that he put out recently on the parables. So Here's our interview with Dr. Webster. Today, we have with us none other than the Dr. Doug Webster. Dr. Webster, thank you very much for joining us. Well, Jonathan, good to be here. Uh, For those who don't know, uh, Dr. Webster uh, was a professor of both mine and Brad's at... uh, Beeson Divinity School, so therefore he is blameworthy and culpable. Um, <laughs> That's and, right. Preaching and, as right, well. Right. Yeah. Um, and and he has uh, been a guest preacher here at Shades uh, twice now, I believe. Um, and so we're very grateful for the continued relationship that we get with you. Um, something that people don't know about is, is Dr. Webster does allow me to call him and text him uh, on occasion, just just to pick his brain on things. Uh, he, he's written a book on Revelation, which I used uh, oh, yeah. frequently throughout the series we did last year in Revelation. And not only did I use his book, but he, he let me call him <laughs> and ask questions. So we're just very grateful for your ministry and very grateful for the time you're giving us today. Well, thanks a lot. Good to be with you. Cool. Well, um, if you would just tell us a little bit about about yourself. Well, um, we've been, Virginia and I have been in Birmingham for uh, about 14 years now, Um, and we're still outsiders. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, I I think that uh, unless you grow up here, um, I don't know as if you're ever from here. Um, Now, where did you grow up? 
I grew up in Buffalo, New York. Okay. And uh, we have lived uh, since those Western New York days. We've lived about 10 years in the Chicago area, 11 years in Toronto, three years in Bloomington, Indiana, another three years in Colorado, in the Denver area. And then 14 in San Diego before coming here. So now wow. I, I feel like this explains the outsider feeling. Because <laughs> I didn't grow up in Birmingham, but I feel fine here. But I grew up in the South. Yeah, he's a Georgia boy. Right, well, right. Well, I feel fine here too, but I'm still an outsider. Okay, okay. <laughs> so what brought you all to Birmingham? Uh, Beeson. Um, I was 56 and an opportunity to... Um, I think think of the last chapter as training people for church ministry and for being involved that way. Uh, I miss the church a lot, um, but I, I tell myself that it's probably good to teach pastoral theology and preaching because you do miss it and because you value uh, the church, the household of faith in Christ. So uh, it was sort of this last chapter, although, you know, I'm I'll hit 70 this month, and uh, I'm kind of thinking, you know, maybe I was too early on the last chapter business. <laughs> <laughs> so you say last chapter being mm. kind of in the academy exclusively and, and teaching and training future leaders. So I'm assuming prior chapters to that, uh, you were mainly in the local church. Mainly in the church, right. Pastored in, uh, while I was working on my doctorate in Toronto, I pastored a small urban church. Mm made up of West Indians and Portuguese from the Azores, and I like to say old Canadians. Um, and ever since then, I've really been involved in, well, I was involved up through San Diego in pastoral ministry. And it's still, I'm in a preaching rotation and teaching ministry in a church. Hmm. So I, I've really had trouble struggling between which home I'm most comfortable in, the academy or the church. I'd say the church. Uh, because Beeson's kind of a special place. I mean, you're always mindful of the church at Beeson. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, I feel like we're kind of going backwards, so could you talk a little <laughs> bit about uh, your call to ministry and even how you came to the faith? We'd oh, love to hear that. My. I, I was raised in a really strong Christian home. I loved my, my parents loved me. I loved them. Uh, I said growing up and into early adulthood and marriage and kids— if I could only parent the way my parents parented. Hmm. Um, so I was really blessed um, with that. And early on, I think as a young teenager, really knew that whatever I was going to do, it was all about the Bible. I didn't know what aspect or, or what kind of work I'd be doing, but I thought it was about that. So I'm um, biblical studies was my major, and my master's was in New Testament. And my doctorate was in theology, and uh, I kind of thought I'd be a missionary aviation pilot. Wow. That was the heroic. That feels very specific. <laughs> like, <laughs> like from, from I'm generally going to do something with the Bible yeah. <laughs> to, to this very specific thing. But then, uh, and then I, I think that it was probably I felt most comfortable teaching and the concerns that a pastor ought to have relationally and helping people in grief and preparing people for weddings and being there to help in terms of uh, a memorial service for those. That type of thing scared me. Mm. The idea of the more uh, on-call, relational. And so I had to grow into that. And once I grew into it, 
uh, I became not only comfortable with it, but really saw the tremendous value of it. So, uh, yeah, it's been a long process. I haven't arrived yet. Uh, I may be running out of time, but uh, I haven't arrived yet. So, it's actually really encouraging to me to hear you say you haven't arrived yet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> at, at, yes. At nearing seventy. Now, where are you currently serving in Birmingham? At the Advent uh, Cathedral Church of the Advent downtown. Okay. It's an Episcopal church that's very gospel-centered, and uh, they asked me to come on board in a kind of quasi-teaching and in the preaching rotation. Yeah, I just got to say, they're very selfish in hoarding quality resources over there. (laughs) There are several professors, I think, that either are involved there or have been throughout the years. I'm like, come on, y'all. That's true. Come come, come over here. (laughs) I'm just kidding. We love the NFL. But you were a Presbyterian minister. Correct. Did you grow up in the Presbyterian Church right, as well? Right. Okay. I'm ordained in the Presbyterian Church, okay. and uh, actually, several of us at the Advent are, and uh, <laughs> they still accept us. Uh, <laughs> when I preach in a robe, I'm preaching in the Geneva robe, the Presbyterian robe, and oh, they wow. still. Although, in one of the first incidences of preaching there, I was in the back for, for the processional. And one of the ushers came up to me and said, I think the Presbyterian Church is down a block. Uh, <laughs> but I know I've been really welcomed there, and they seem to love the preached word. Mm. So yeah, I'm grateful. Definitely. Well, you're sitting amongst three low church brethren who didn't even know there was a thing called the Geneva robe or that you could tell the difference between robes between denominations. That's, that's right. I'm just learning this right now. Me too. As we're talking. It's been very informative. Oh, well, then let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> Please. Yes. Yeah. The Geneva robe is just a black robe with uh, nothing else. So, I mean, it's uh, as understated as you could possibly be. And the idea of the robe is to cover up the pastor. Hmm. And it's not a, so much a statement of office or privilege, but just um, so as, I mean, it reduces all distraction for sure. Nobody's cared what you're wearing. <laughs> um, so it's just in the black robe every, and I've worn the same robe now for 40 plus years. Wow. This robe sounds like it was tailor-made for your pastoral theology. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, for- you can't out low church me. Right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Touche. Well done. Oh, yeah. Um, in Dr. Webster's pastoral theology class, uh, we go through his work on pastoral theology, and he has an entire chapter. Of course, I when I was going through it, I wasn't. Uh, we didn't. You didn't have the finished printed version of the book, so I don't know how much it changed from the time I went through. It. I still have my binder, by the way, um, with that pre-published version uh, upstairs. But one of the first chapters is entitled "The Unadorned Altar," um, in which you you explore kind of that aspect of your pastoral theology um, that I was making the joke that the robe very much fit the idea being to cover up the pastor and it just being very plain and yeah. simple. That's important background for that joke. For it sure. very is. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, not only in your work uh, that you, you're doing work at Beeson, you're doing work uh, for the Advent, but you also obviously guest speak at places. You've done that for us. Is that something that you enjoy in this phase of ministry? I do uh, very much so. Um, you know, just recently preaching at Shades, um, there's so many people that I kind of know, um, that you feel somewhat at home. So I consider that a privilege. And then the, um, 
the idea that I could preach on the subject of Philippians 3 between religious confidence and Christ-centered confidence and do it, I felt really comfortable and free to do that here, partly because I know what you preach. So I didn't feel like I was, um, you know, coming in as a guest preacher and laying out something that was going to cause a lot of trouble. I, I thought it'd be challenging. I think mm. it's a challenging message. Um, but I, I felt like this is a place that could handle it. So I kind of, I really appreciated having an outlet for the thinking that had gone behind the sermon. For yeah. sure. And we... We're very appreciative of it. Loved it. You know, often people will joke about how a guest speaker can say whatever they want to because they don't <laughs> have to deal with the, the aftermath. And your your application within that sermon uh, was very specifically aimed at kind of what's been happening uh, or what we've been seeing manifest itself in a very volatile way uh, here recently with this marriage between uh, religiosity and politics. Right. Um, and, and so you talked about the, the Capitol riots that happened on uh, January the 6th. And I, I really loved how you framed it in terms of uh, th- in terms of covenant, in terms of redemptive history, really, and where we are in redemptive history and how the zeal that was displayed uh, by people claiming the name of Christ at the Capitol is, is really it's a, it's a misplaced zeal and it's a misunderstanding of where we fall as the people of God in redemptive history and what you kept contrasting um that that we are a uh, a great commission people uh not oh what was the term joshua conquest yeah people. not a con- joshua conquest people um and yeah i just thought that was really helpful framing because th- these are things and themes that we talked about uh, a lot as a church as we went through the book of revelation last year revelation being a very political book and very in your face political book but we often talked about it in terms of idolatry and uh and uh, committing political idolatry uh, uh setting up the state as your savior uh as it were and all of that's true but i really think that covenant redemptive historical uh, aspect that you brought to it adds a foundation uh, underneath everything that, that I felt like uh, we were talking about concerning political idolatry. So I actually wanted to ask you uh, just a couple of questions uh, about that to, to hopefully maybe let you flesh that out a little bit more uh, for us. I, I wonder, um, what does proper Christian political engagement look like to you? Like as, as, a, new, as a, um, a new covenant people, as a new covenant member, you know, um, most of what we hear, I think, is critique, and rightly so, of, of what we've been witnessing. But what would you say to someone who then asks kind of that follow-up question of like, okay, so I'm Christian in the New Covenant. What, what does it look like for me to properly engage politically? Well, for me, the best guide for that is in the Bible is First Peter, because I think First Peter is wrestling with a lot of these issues. And in a way, you've got... Um, First Peter, in a way, is, is the book of Revelation, only in language that is much more understandable and straightforward. Mm-hmm. And I think we should impress the world with how good we are, uh, of course, with a sense of our own sinfulness and our own weakness and our own humility, uh, which takes all malice and anger out of the equation. Mm. I think we should speak to all, 
all addresses, but in a tone that is, uh, is calm and is uh, respectful of those who disagree with us, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, in, and in no way hateful. Uh, I think that's hard for us to do. It's hard because these issues trigger our adrenaline, um, and they, they give us a sense of needing to fight for what's right in our eyes. And I think we need to read a lot more scripture, pray a lot more psalms to get into the frame of mind for engagement um, outside the church as well as uh, in the church. Uh, I struggled with the zeal that was expressed on January 6th uh, by people that obviously were feeling very earnest for their faith. And it just seems so contradictory to what I bring to the table as a Christian, as a disciple of Christ. And, um, and this, uh, so it was only like a week before I preached here that this kind of came together for me, the understanding that the zeal was a religious zeal. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a political zeal. They felt like it, it got politicized, but uh, they were fighting for America first the way Joshua was fighting for Israel first. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were doing it in a way that um, uh, expressed their passion for God, but it was such a wrong, wrongly conceived passion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just, I think First Peter's a wonderful epistle that puts things in perspective uh, for us. Uh, I don't think we should be apolitical, um, and I don't think that any party really does represent the Christian point of view. Um, so, I, I, and our vote can't be determined, I think, in that sort of holistic sense that, well, we're either Republican or Democrat. Uh, I think we've got to think through um, how best, how wisely to exercise our vote and exercise our speech. We could go on for hours on that one. Oh, sure, sure. No, yeah, yeah. I, I'm sitting here thinking, uh, j- just even as you're talking, certain scriptures are coming to mind. I mean, I'm like, he's describing speech seasoned with salt. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's mm-hmm. describing, you know, making a defense of your faith, yet always with gentleness. You know, um, yeah, I just, now all of that's really, really helpful just as we continue to think through uh, these issues. Um, what would you say... Uh, it, what would you say is a sign that someone is moving from political involvement and engagement and beginning to enter into political idolatry? What are some signs that we as Christians can kind of look for to see like, okay, I've crossed over from uh, even having some sort of political zeal or fervor um, fighting for justice to now I've entered into what we could identify as political idolatry, which seems that a lot of pastors are warning about, right? We talk about political involvement, that's good, but when our political involvement becomes idolatrous, that's when it's problematic. So I wonder if you had any thoughts on that. I probably want to reframe the question. Okay. Maybe more. It was Jonathan's question, by the way. I just, <laughs> I just asked it. So maybe more in terms of how do you think Christianly about anything, about any issue that's coming to the fore? Mm. 
How do you think and then respond Christianly? I've been so concerned that I think that we've we're, we've got the Christian mind that is sort of focused on a very small area of concern that covers spirituality and and my prayer life and and not a spirituality that covers the totality of our lives. And uh, I, I would like to bring the Christian mind to bear on all aspects of our life, uh, how we spend our money, uh, how we th- hear the news and what news we hear, and uh, how we process that. How do we discern between news that comes to us that appear as factual and reliable versus uh, propagandized news, um, and being able to discern that and be able to rationally talk these things out. I mean, Christians are really struggling now with even raising the subject and talking among sisters and brothers in Christ, uh, and I think that, that that's a shame. We're so polarized uh, at this point. Mm. I, uh, I do think that a certain sense of decency and in order and um, respect for the office and all of these things are actually important factors for our democracy, and uh, denying them and ignoring them has been really detrimental over the last four years. Mm. You, you spoke a little bit about news. It seems like this is a big factor in shaping our uh, shaping our affections, shaping how we view the world, shaping how we enter into the political conversation. I think as we talk about political involvement as Christians or how to think Christianly in the political realm, models and examples can be helpful. So I'm just curious, you're someone that is aware of what's happening around you. <laughs> uh, you're someone that's aware of what's going on in the culture. So how how do you uh, digest what you see in the news? How do you uh, engage and view the news without kind of being, I don't know, indoctrinated by it or getting sucked into unhelpful news messages? It seems like this is such an important part of the conversation is what news we're listening to, how we're listening to it, how often we're listening to it. That was my own question, so you well, feel free to reframe it. Well, that's an even bigger question. Yeah. Uh, I think that, um, yeah, again, it's a question of discernment. I mean, there's whole channels of news that I don't even listen to because I feel that... Um, Go I'm, ahead and listen. Yeah, I was about no, to say... I'm that. kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I'm totally kidding. I, I'm, kidding. I feel like I'm being manipulated yeah. so quickly, um, and... Uh, there's a show that I tape. It's on Sundays. Um, Fareed Sakari on CNN, and he will have all sorts of people that you don't hear, um, uh, university and and states craft people who've been in it for a long time who are writing really solid books. And I don't agree with everybody at all on that program. But you just feel like you're getting somebody who uh, has thought deeply about this, whether you agree with them or not. Mm. And uh, I think we can pick that up. I think we can understand when somebody has uh, really applied themselves to considering the various issues. Uh, for example, uh, the immigration problem, the problem on the border uh, you know, I, I would like the perspective that Germany um, accepted a million refugees from Syria when Syria was falling apart. A million. And 
Uh, the New York Times said today that in, in 20 years, we're going to face a, a labor shortage that will cost trillions of dollars a year. Well, there is a tremendous advantage right now if we looked at immigration differently. There's a lot of, there's thousands of trainable, eager workers coming into our country. And rather than resenting them, we might see them as the future. Mm. Of all countries, maybe we should be the best on immigration because we're a country of immigrants. I'm a second generation American. Uh, my father was born in England and immigrated here. Uh, I think we ought to outdo other countries in our openness, in our usefulness, in terms of deploying the immigrant uh, labor force. So, I, yeah. I, and, you know, I spent 11 years in Canada, <laughs> 11 years of looking across the border. And you don't, mm. I kind of have the feeling you don't really understand your own nation unless you've lived outside of it for some time wow. and begin to look at it through the eyes of, uh, of other nationalities. And you see some of the wisdom and respect. I mean, one of our problems as Americans is we're not paying attention to other countries that are doing it better than we are. Taiwan has handled the pandemic far better almost than any other country. We can learn from Taiwanese. I spent a year living in Taiwan, so I pay attention, I guess, to those realities too. So uh, just being more open-minded with a Christ-centered focus, hmm. that would be maybe in a in a caption, what yes. I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's no, all really helpful. Yeah, you touched on this uh, a few minutes ago. Definitely within our within our Christian community, we are uh, polarized politically, and there are a number of people, just even within within our own congregation, that uh, are very politically diverse from one another. And so, what are some ways in which we can recognize that diversity within our own bodies and body of believers, and how can we love and understand each other better, despite what kind of political beliefs we may hold? Well, again, I might not run at the issue from how divided we are, mm -hmm. how diverse. I think I might run at the issue is uh, we've got so much in common, because of Christ. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, we might start by looking at the political significance of the Psalms, because there's a tremendous grasp of praying out our anger against evil in the Psalms. And that's shared territory for us. And yet most Christians don't have much of a grasp of the Psalms. Um, and so there's you know, work to do there. Just um, how the early church looked at uh, this political opposition and how did they respond to that? I mean, that would be, I think, a, and you certainly covered some of that by looking at the book of Revelation. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd major on what we have in common. We worship together. We love one another. We pray together um, and, and focus that way and I think some of our, our some of our divisions are going to be diminished by that process, mm -hmm. rather than, well, who, what camps are do we have represented right. here? Yeah. Has someone told him that we're in a series on the Psalms right now? That's like the second or third time you've mentioned the Psalms. I'm like, 
Somebody did somebody the holy, that the holy Spirit did. <laughs> <laughs> we just started just a couple of weeks ago. Um, so that's even uh, I mean that's just helpful even as I uh, am preparing each week thinking through the psalms that we're exploring and going what's, through. What psalms are you if I can ask questions? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> sure. Uh, well I mean we started uh, just with kind of introductory so I did Psalm 1 and 2 for the oh. first message and then the second message did Psalm 16. We've tried to get uh, it's going to be about 20 weeks total and we're trying to get a decent swath of the psalms mm-hmm. both like not trying to be too heavy just in book one or book two, like get a decent spread that way, but then also a decent spread over genre of psalm, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. so that we're not just doing all psalms of confidence or all lament or or those kinds of things. So, um, so yeah, so we've charted the series out. And so, so this Sunday I'm in Psalm 23. So, uh, yeah. Most of us know that one a little bit. Yeah, 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 a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> well, those are great, though. Um Psalm 16 is such a beautiful human flourishing psalm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you talk about politics, Psalm 1 and 2. Oh, yeah. Um, son of man, son of God. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's great stuff. And that's why I've probably felt so comfortable preaching on Philippians 3 here. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, I thank you, one, just for letting us pick your brain about that Philippians 3 sermon a little bit more, especially the application as it surrounds kind of the current uh, religious and political landscape. Um, you've been very gracious to allow us to, to venture in there a little bit. But there was one other thing we wanted to spend at least a, a little bit of time talking with you about, and that is you, uh, you're not just a pastor and scholar and all of these things. You're an author. Uh, as well, as I mentioned earlier, yeah. with your how many your, books have you written? I lost track. I, I, to, to <laughs> that, me, that's enough. That's right. <laughs> to me, the issue know. is how many readers do you have, oh. and how many books do you have? Uh, you know, uh, um, publishers are always looking at an author's platform, right? You know, and then you need mm. a big platform to publish books. And I think my platform keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. <laughs> Uh, but I love writing. Writing's been a way of processing Christian thinking for me, um, and so it's been really important. And I also, every book I've written has been played out in a congregational, in a church setting. So there's nothing that I've written that has stayed just sort of in the study and then in the book. It's all been, in a way, vetted by the household of faith. And, and that that leaves... Um, there's something there for my grandkids to read. Mm. <laughs> well, well, trust me, after coming on this program, allowing us to interview, your, your readership is about to just expand and That's blow right. up. <laughs> because yes. our platform our reach. is crazy. Just, <laughs> you know, tens of listeners. So Yeah, that's um. true. Now, this is random, and I might be totally wrong, but I think I remember this from a class. You don't set an alarm. You just wake up. Right, you wake up very early, and is that when you do most of your writing? Am I correct on that? Yeah, I I love the mornings for writing. What time do you normally wake up? Uh, five today. Um, okay. And I thought it was early. You know, it's it's <laughs> I'm I'm like my grandkids. You know, they, um, the Micah who's uh, six. You know, he'll wake up, but he can't come out of his room until the light comes on. Right? <laughs> And uh, I'm a little bit like that. I wake up and I can't get out of bed. It's too early. Uh, <laughs> right, right. So, um, yeah, uh, 
sleep isn't a great priority. I wish I slept better, but <laughs> sleep's not a great priority. Yeah, I thought so. Uh-huh. Well, your your latest book um, that's been published is on. I say that that's been published because I'm sure he has like 50 that aren't published yet that he's working on. Uh, that true. seemed to always be the case when we were in your class. You always were working on on something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this book is on the parables. Uh, the title is simply The Parables, uh, subtitled Jesus' Friendly Subversive Speech, um, which makes me have a couple of thoughts, uh, just even as I read the title. One, uh, it makes me think of your Jeremiah book. Uh, isn't the subtitle of that, doesn't it have the word parable in it? Yeah. It does. It's it because because you approach memory. you approach Jeremiah as a parable of the life of Jesus, right? To a large extent. So, so I'm curious to know. You know, it, it seems like that subject of just parables and parabolic speech has had an influence on you. Played a role in your ministry for quite some time. So I'm just curious to hear a little bit more about about that. But then use the word subversive, and I remember very that that just strikes me as very much a Eugene Peterson word. Um, and I know that Peterson has also exercised a lot of influence uh, on your thought over the years. So I'm just, I'm curious, um, just kind of how you came to this project, like like what role the parables have played in your life and ministry to lead you to want to write a book specifically on the parables. Yeah. Uh, the book covers uh, 22 parables, so pretty much all the major parables. Do you know off the top of your head how many there are? I, I don't. I don't have a clue. Well, uh, in, At least term, 22. in terms of the major ones, <laughs> I mean, you know, parables can be defined almost down to a, a sentence. Right, right, for and sure. And so the ones that really embody a story mm-hmm. um, are covered in, in okay. the book. Okay, yeah. um, and I've preached on them over the years, and I've found them always sort of a, a really interesting, you know, and I, I think that it's really important not to preach them moralistically, but to preach them I think this is one of the most important truths about the parables is you've got to remember who's speaking. Mm. If you always remember that the one who spoke the parables is going to the cross, that gives you the framework of understanding this story. And it also Mm. has to be understood in the light of the Old Testament because these parables are really preaching the Old Testament, I think, in powerful ways. So mm-hmm. we can't extrapolate the parable into a kind of a moralist. But how I got to writing this book, I was asked uh, to speak at a church on Wednesday nights for four weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it took me about an hour to get there on Wednesday night and about an hour to get home after a long day where you get up at five. Uh, <laughs> That's right. So, you know, and I'm, um, you know, I got there for the fellowship time, for eating dinner before the teaching time. And the teaching time just seems so flat. I was working through the Sermon on the Mount. I'm, I'm always excited about the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of my favorite texts. And, uh, but it wasn't clicking. It was like I was, um, I was teaching but it was just I was being confronted by opinions that were coming back irrespective of what has been said in the Sermon on the Mount. Each week I got more and more discouraged. And here, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, and it seemed like I was so ineffective. And each week I was getting worse. <laughs> and we've, we've never felt that. No. Can't relate to that Can't at all. Can't relate. <laughs> and the fourth week was my last one, and I, uh, you know, I closed with uh, Jesus's picture of uh, 
the person who builds their house on the rock versus the person who builds their house on the sand. And, and, I, and I, you know, I was by myself. I was walking out. It was dark. And I just I said out loud, this is why Jesus spoke parables. And I wish that I had caught on about three weeks sooner to tell stories. The parables would have gone over much better with this group. And, I've, I, and when you look at the life of Jesus, he kind of hit the wall after the Sermon on the Mount because the religious opposition was growing much more intense and the crowds were getting bigger. And even his family came to take him home because he was gone off, they felt. And then he moved into parables. So it was at a in Matthew, it was at a strategic point in the chronology of his earthly ministry where he switched from more explicit preaching and teaching to telling these stories. And the stories were brilliant in that he kept the crowds. And they could interpret it moralistically. So in a sense, the parables were something of a type of entertainment for them, unless they were intrigued, unless they were really curious, and then they were asking deeper questions about it. But it also gave an opportunity for the disciples to say, well, what did you mean? And then Jesus expounds the meaning to them, uh, to the small band, and it kept the religious leaders at bay. They really didn't get any traction for going deeper in their charges against him. So uh, now Matthew kind of groups them all together, uh, the parables, and Luke kind of scatters them as illustrations. John has a completely different philosophy of Jesus's teaching ministry, which shows just the tremendous variety of our Lord and communicator. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Mark kind of skips them. Um, so, uh, uh, but it's... In some ways, they're simple, but they're always profound. And uh, so, I, yeah, I've been excited about the parables, and I continue to be excited about the parables. So if you might have just answered this, so you can just expound a little bit more about it if you'd like, but why did Jesus use parables? Well, to avoid giving ammunition to the opposition— could you, could you maybe explain that a little bit more, what you mean by that? Well, I don't think the religious leaders could figure out what he was really trying to say. But they were not in the mood to ask him <laughs> what he meant. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think there's that aspect of it. Uh, the crowd, um, I think, were, uh, were impressed with the nature of the stories, and I think they felt there was a moral to them. Uh, in the same way that we had listened to some of our entertaining communicators as well. Uh, but I don't think that they were necessarily drawn to being asking questions. But the disciples knew that Jesus meant more. Uh, and they often, I think, understood that this had an Old Testament echo to it and how that tied in. So, you know, I think there's a variety of ways that people heard Jesus. Uh, and we hear him today in the light of the scope of salvation history, which helps. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I was going to ask, you know, knowing Jesus' purpose 
in preaching parables. Uh, it's interesting to think about like our purpose in preaching, teaching, or writing about parables. Like, how do you do? You feel like there's a, a difference there at all in the, you know, the way Jesus was using the way we do. So, what is our purpose in? Well, we have a terrible time not being moralistic with them as well, um, which I. Uh, I, I think they lend themselves to very practical application in the Christian's life. And it's also that we've got to kind of defamiliarize ourselves with them. Right, right. They become so familiar, and so we've got to try to come at them slant, uh, angled uh, in such a way. Uh, and it may not be... It may not be easy. I, I think the, the the misnomer is, well, these are really easy to preach. Hmm. And I don't think they're quite so easy. Um, the language is easy, for sure. Um, so I, um, I'm always looking for the angle that I can use, I think, hopefully, um, creatively. The, the tension in the text, as it the were. The tension in the text, Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. a book title of, of Dr. Webster's, yeah. another one of his, his books. Yeah, very helpful. It, it really, it really, really is. Um, and, uh, yeah, like... Uh, we should explain maybe tension in the text for your, sure. yeah. for your 10 hearers. Um, <laughs> that's a generous number. Uh, the tension in the text comes from, one, you know, you take a biblical passage, and what you want to see is two dimensions the fallen human condition, which can be in a variety of ways, as well as God's redemptive provision. And that should be sort of your textual scope, that you get both of those dimensions in play. God's perspective of our need, and the need may not be just our sin, the need may be our suffering, and God's wonderful, gracious, redemptive provision. So, for example, if you take Jonah 4 and just preach on the first few verses about how Jonah's angry and you turn it into a message on uh, road rage, you've really missed the whole point of the text. Because as, uh, as the passage continues, deals with the mercy of God for the, for the Ninevites. And God says to Jonah, well, what do you think? Shouldn't I have regard for the Ninevites more than you have regard for your plant that dried up. You know, so, I mean, you want both dimensions. I could get carried away with this. I Sure. Sounds, no, no. sounds very similar to, to a parable concerning a, an older brother there somewhere. Yeah. Um, mm. But, uh, yeah, to, to get back to the parables. Um, I, I can barely read your writing, John. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, having tr- I'm having trouble reading the Well, we're next just going to give it away that I wrote all the questions. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm, sorry. To, I'm trying to I share apologize. the mic space. No, I, just that next question to interpret my chicken scratch. There is uh, what? What do the parables have to say? Do you feel like in our particular moment? Like, why write a book about the parables right now in our point in history, our culture? Oh, Jonathan, I'm not nearly that concerned on relevance. Uh, <laughs> I know, which is why I want you to talk about that. <laughs> I, um, you know, just anything in the Bible's f- fair game. So, I mean, would you? Uh, I, I, one of the things that we teach in the 
preaching course I've had for a number of years is preaching a parable. And so, I've, I mean, I've always been interested in just how you do this um, and in what way you can use it. Um, now, Dr. Thillman, for example, feels that one should preach the parables in the light of the context. So as you move through the gospel, you hit a parable, you know, you cover that, you preach that. I would agree with him completely that um, the context helps us to interpret the parables. So the running narrative that surrounds, that comes into and out of the parable is crucial for biblical interpretation. Uh, but I think you could also, with benefit, preach parable after parable after parable, uh, especially if you kind of understand how they work in Luke versus how they work in Matthew. I just think that any time is a good time for parables. <laughs> and certainly they strike us all in terms of our cultural moment, uh, some more than others. But like you just referred to the parable of the, the lost son and the um, older brother, I, for years, grew up as, you know, in a kid, remembering the preaching on that sermon was all about the prodigal son. Right. And I didn't have a clue as to, well, the older brother is a major portion of this story. And when you see that, you know, and Tim Keller does a great job, I mean, I think that's probably one of his signature parables that define his ministry. And the notion that... Um, the lost son really represents our secularism, and uh, the older brother really represents our religious confidence. And to see, you know, that all humanity is kind of addressed in this simple story of two sons, um, and the father's not to blame. You know, uh, the loving father that's open to both and shows mercy to both. Yeah. Hmm. This might be, this is my question, by the way. It just came to me. <laughs> I want to be clear for all our hearers. Uh, and this is a little bit of a broad question, but is there anything that surprised you or was unexpected as, as you wrote this book on the parables? Even after all these years of studying and reading and preaching and teaching the parables. Boy, I, I really just wanted him to say no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, think I know that stuff. Or anything you found interesting? Oh my! Well, everything I found. Yeah. I mean, it's, I tried to. I tried I, to it's broaden the Bible, it. I tried to broaden it. I think there's something in each parable that I uh, interesting. I'm kind of drawing a blank on what surprised me. Mm. Um, we should talk a specific parable, I guess. But um, yeah, the um, what surprised me, I think I explained earlier that Jesus chose a particular communicational strategy because of the context of his time. Mm -hmm. um, and this may go back to John Mark's uh, question that what do you do with a really polarized congregation? Maybe you ought to preach the parables <laughs> because it does that sort of end run. And good preaching tries to get past our defenses and the parables do a wonderful job of that um, because um, we don't know that we're included until it's too late. Right. 
right. and and it's they Nathan's kind of, strategy, right? Yeah, With David, right? They sneak up on us, as it were. Mm-hmm. So, this may be a really good time to do that. Do you have a favorite parable? Uh, probably not, John Mark. I mm-hmm. mean, I um, no, I can't say that I. I can't say that I do. Um, yeah. Do you have one that like that you've you've preached the most? Boy, you guys are in a rating system, <laughs> aren't you? <laughs> we are trying to get you to pick a favorite. What? We want to know. We've got a we've got a the pool next, going. The we've next, got a wager. Right. Next question will be: Would you please rate each parable yes, from please. one to ten? One to one ten. To ten. That's right. We need exactly. to know. The people want want to know. No. Well, um. Just kind of, I guess to to sum up here, like, is there any uh, is there anything else like you would like uh, our listeners to know, like, just about the the book in general, if they're considering? Well, one of the problems is that maybe I should have put the appendix at the very beginning, because the appendix does clarify the whole kind of christological orientation of the parables. And now I kind of wish that. That had been up front because originally the publisher wanted me to to write a well I thought I was writing a book on how to preach the parables hmm. and uh, and I guess how to doesn't appeal to me as much as actually just interacting with the parables but I kept thinking about how um, you know like the notion of sort of a sacramental quality to the parables because of their earthiness and their tangibleness Mm. and how that fits with um, our baptism and Holy Communion. And just issues like that that orient gave me an orientation to the parables that I hadn't expected. Mm. Uh, In regards to resources, I know in writing a book like this, you studied and looked at different books and commentaries. Are there any other resources, not that your book is lacking in any way, of course, but is, are there any other guides to the parables that you found helpful that you would recommend for people to look? Clyde Snodgrass has a major work, like 400-some pages on parables, and I think that's a really good... I, I quote him a lot. Uh, okay. I think it's um, a really helpful... Uh, helpful book. Uh, and then I just, your general um, Matthew commentary, like Dale Bruner is really good on, mm. um, and you just pick a gospel, get your, use your gospel commentaries when it comes to the parables as well yeah. as books just on the parables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. That's very helpful. This is a broad question, but is there anything that you're personally reading right now that you're really enjoying, whether it be theological, uh, maybe a fiction novel, anything like that that you could recommend to our listeners? Hmm. On can a scale you, can, of one, can you to rate ten. the last five <laughs> and then and then rate them and then rate them all. Um. Oh, what's the Truman book on? The uh, oh Carl Truman's uh, new one yeah. um, on the the Moder- self the modernity the, uh, the modern self what's yeah, called um, I can't it's I can't remember the title now off the top of my head have you finished it no I'm a hundred pages into it just got it yesterday and it, uh, it's the on rise my, and triumph of the modern self yeah yeah that's it it's um, it's on my short list to read 
uh, I just finished uh, um, Barack Obama's 700-page biography. Wow. And, um, you know, that's kind of interesting in terms of telling telling stories. Uh, I counted up the number of people that helped him write it. I think it's over 25. Whoa. So, I mean, this is a really, uh, you know, it's, it is probably so fine to, you know, fine combed. Uh, right, right. That's how many people helped you with your book, right? <laughs> yeah. Course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a lonely writer, I guess. I was about but, to say, uh, if I had 25 helpers, I'd be cranking out some books. Yeah. Put out a 700 pager. Um, but it's just, yeah. Um, it's an interesting read. I guess I was, uh, it both endeared me to his. Um, I think altruistic, liberal bent, but I thought there would be more depth to the political consciousness. And uh, so I missed the depth, but um, I, I do think that he really is concerned to see all sides. I mean, he doesn't agree with all sides, but he, he takes pains to describe all sides, and why would you do that if you're not concerned for that? So that was... Um, that was an interesting read. I um, right now I'm reading a lot on Genesis because I'm doing a uh, a class on on Genesis, oh. and uh, I found that an interesting comparison. Barack Obama's 700 page first term. He's still got another book to oh, do wow. for the second term, and you know <laughs> life in first term. And I'm reading Genesis, and uh, from chapter 12 to 25 is the life of Abraham. And just the difference between the oral communication that you feel in the book of Genesis, you feel like a bunch of Hebrews are sitting around telling stories, and they right. tell the story of Abraham, and it's so rich. I mean, it's just so there's so many ways you could go with this story, and it, it's, uh, it reminds me of my um, uh, grandfather and how he would tell stories, and how different that is from the highly edited, carefully crafted, modern bio mm -hmm. versus the story of salvation history. And, uh, I mean, the longest story in the Abraham account is him trying to find a wife for Isaac, which is beautifully told. And, it, it you know, obviously the uh, sacrifice of Isaac, on all, the almost sacrifice of Isaac, Isaac is probably the pivotal passage in the story, but that doesn't get nearly the same length as 60-some verses describing Isaac finding a wife. Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, you've been very generous with your time, and I just wanted to close with uh, one last question that's really just about my own curiosity, um, and that is, do you have anything that you're working on right now? Are you writing currently? Um, I just finished editing book one of my Psalms work. Uh, well, I, c I could use a PDF. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, uh, I, I, for the last five years, I've been working on the Psalms, and, uh, and it was really hard to get a publisher because it's just so big. It's 400,000 words. And, oh, wow. Uh, so how many volumes will that end up being? Four. Wow. Um, so book three and uh, book three and four are combined uh, in the Psalms, right. and then um, 
and they're about four equal. And that's just been a ton of work. And I, you know, you face the idea, well, this may not, it may be forever a PDF. Um, <laughs> and, it, and that's okay. I mean, I, there's no wasted, this is one of the beautiful things about spending time with the Bible is there is no wasted time, mm. even if you don't mm. get it published. Mm. So, um, but Kriegel has agreed to do the Psalms, and so I've been editing that volume. So, I, and I, uh, I actually purposely during writing the parables and stuff didn't go back to the Psalms. I kind of kept myself away from it. Right. Um, right. Mm-hmm. And I love the Psalms. Mm. I just really do. I think they'd solve a lot of our problems. <laughs> we just, just prayed the Psalms and got into them. Uh, well, I I really will have to talk to you after we log off here about what I can do to get a hold of a bootleg copy or something. Oh, yeah. But, uh, but we just thank you so much just for your commitment to an ongoing relationship with us, even after mm-hmm. we've graduated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah. allowing us to, to continue to benefit from your ministry in so many ways and uh and just for your involvement uh your willingness to 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 give time to shades and and to give us time today we're just really grateful well thank you i've enjoyed this brad john mark jonathan thank you absolutely thank you so much this has been another episode of shades midweek we thank you for listening